The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World, Episode 14 Romano Barbaric Italy. Oduacha is more commonly known in the English-speaking world as Oduasa. In the Greek-speaking world, he is known as Oduakros. Sometimes we see his name with the letter V in it too, so it reads Oduvesa. We have encountered him before as the first Western Roman emperor who ruled after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The fall of the Western Roman Empire is commonly known to have happened in the year 476, although it wasn't necessarily the occasion that we reflectively look back upon it as. In 476, simply speaking, the Western Roman Emperor was deposed by Odoacer, who took control of the Western Roman Empire himself. This is not something uncommon in Western Roman Empire history. A great many emperors were deposed over the centuries and replaced. So why was this occasion so special then? The Romans had always had their problems with the barbarians. The barbarians were not a race of people. The barbarians were a collective name that the Romans had for the less civilised tribes who lived across their northern frontiers and were partial to a bit of raiding of Roman territory. It just so happened that many of the barbarians were of a Germanic culture and language. The concept of a German culture was first determined when Roman scribes from the age of Julius Caesar sought to distinguish Gauls from their semi-nomadic neighbours. Over time, many different Germanic tribal groups were made distinguishable, as the time of the Roman Empire elapsed. These include the Marcomanni, the Suebi, the Alemanni, the Goths, the Franks, the Saxons, the Vandals, the Gepids and the Lombards, just to name a few. Examples of non-Germanic barbarians are the Gauls, the Alans and the Huns. The reason why the year 476 is so significant in our concept of Roman history is that when the man known as Odoacer deposed 
the Roman Emperor Romulus Augustulus. It represented an acknowledgement that the old establishment of an empire governed from the Italian city of Ravenna no longer reflected the political circumstances, and that the true Roman Empire was now in the east, and the fact that Odoacha, a man of Germanic stock, had taken control, meant that if the Western Roman Empire wanted to claim Roman identity, then it would need to recognise the power of the Eastern Roman Empire. This meant that Odoacha would need to be accepted as the new ruler of the Western Roman Empire by the Eastern Roman Emperor in order to validate his usurpation. Odoacha represented a loyalty to the Eastern Romans that was not present in Western Rome at its conclusion. But now that the Western Roman Empire had been confined to the Italian peninsula since the loss of its lands to other European peoples, Western Rome was seen as no more than a kingdom of the Italian peninsula. This rebalancing of European power suited the Eastern Roman Empire nicely, who would now be recognised as the real home of the Roman Empire. This is how the first Kingdom of Italy was formed and how Odoacha became the first Rex Italiae or King of Italy. It is important to add that when we state that Odoacha was a man of Germanic origin, it's a bit of an assumption because there is little in the way of firm evidence of his origins. Many sources strongly suggest a Germanic origin, but some historians argue that his ethnicity can be questioned with one example suggesting that he was actually Hunnic. Either way, we know that the importance of the Western Roman Empire was diminished, with Odoacha being more than happy to be a humble king as opposed to a mighty emperor. Although Odoacha deposed an anti-Constantinople regime and claimed to rule Italy on behalf of the Eastern Romans, the reality is that all the rulers of Italian lands had no interest in being subject to the Eastern Romans. Odoacha knew that the Eastern Romans would try to control him and the Eastern Romans knew that Odoacha would not just do whatever they asked. This trend of Constantinople attempting to control the ruling dynasties of Italy would come to cause a great deal of suffering for the peoples of Italy as the story of post-Roman Italy played out. Initially, Roman culture and structure continued on, with a Roman Senate and Roman statesmen still involved in the governance of Italy. But the situation was evolving and would continue to evolve. The ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire was a man called Flavius Zeno. Zeno had great issue with the outgoing regime of the Western Roman Empire, but there's no record of him giving Odoacha his direct blessing to rule over Italy. It was much more of a case of Odoacha 
pledging allegiance to Constantinople and declaring himself as just a king in order to not instigate Zeno into opposing him. Zeno really did not trust Odoacer though, viewing him as the barbarian that he was. Theodoric the Great Odoacer was a deputy of the Roman military commander Orestes, who deposed the Western Roman Emperor Julius Nepos. Orestes declared his teenage son Romulus Augustulus as the new Roman Emperor. Odoacer turned against Orestes, defeating him and executing him, and then deposing the young Romulus Augustulus before declaring himself the king of Italy, ruling on behalf of the Eastern Roman Emperor Flavius Zeno. Despite Zeno being a supporter of Julius Nepos and therefore making him an opponent of Orestes, the actions of Odoacer overthrowing the tyranny of Orestes before declaring himself as a ruler, ruling in the name of the Eastern Roman Empire, did not sit well with Zeno who did not trust this barbarian ruler. Zeno was right to not trust Odoacer, because Odoacer during his reign as Italian king was happy to raid the lands of the Eastern Roman Empire. The Eastern Romans were quite used to having their comparatively fruitful lands raided by barbarians, however. Certainly the Ostrogoths, who had founded their heartlands in Pannonia, were also happy to raid Eastern Roman lands too. The Ostrogoths were a branch of Gothic peoples who had stayed in Eastern Europe while their Visigothic cousins ventured westwards to found their new kingdom in southern Gaul and the Iberian Peninsula. The Ostrogoths would often be in service to the mighty Hunnic Empire in the middle of the 5th century before Hunnic power waned, leaving the Ostrogoths to establish their own independent kingdom in the vacuum left behind. Their king during the reign of Odoacer was a man called Theodoric the Amal, and his lifetime and legacy is considerable. With the Ostrogoths raiding the Eastern Roman lands, their leader, Theodoric, was a natural enemy of the Eastern Roman Emperor Zeno. And so Zeno would have issues with both Theodoric and Odoacer. Zeno made a diplomatic decision in order to solve these issues. Zeno approached Theodoric and encouraged him to turn his aggressions towards Odoacer in the hope that Zeno could establish Theodoric as the ruler of Italy, eliminating Odoacer and giving Theodoric an imperial realm that may keep him out of Eastern Roman affairs. Theodoric gratefully turned his attentions west and defeated the Gepids before taking on Odoacer's forces in Italy and defeating them again and again, causing Odoacer to retreat to Ravenna and finally concede that Theodoric and the Ostrogoths 
had bullied Oduacha into submission. After three years of a siege, Oduacha and Ravenna finally surrendered to Theodoric. Oduacha was eventually murdered in the year 493, and the Western Roman aristocracy and the Western Roman Senate accepted Theodoric as their new king, a position that had been declared by the Eastern Roman Empire before the campaign even began. The Eastern Roman Emperor Zeno passed away from illness before Theodoric completed this conquest. Theodoric ruled over Italy, but it is unclear how much autonomy was granted to him by the Byzantines or the Eastern Roman Empire. Certainly, Italy retained a lot of its Roman jurisdiction and governance, and Ostrogothic peoples were not granted the same civilian rights as Roman citizens, which points towards Theodoric needing to maintain a diplomatic relationship between Italy and the Byzantine Empire, despite there being clear tensions between the ethnicities and a degree of distrust between the leaders. Theodoric would also make diplomatic bonds through marriage alliances with the Visigoths, the Burgundians and the Franks, which would have also made the Byzantines slightly wary. At one point, Theodoric was even invited to be the regent to the Visigothic kingdom, further unnerving his potential opponents, now that he was gaining much power and influence during the early years of the 6th century. Theodoric's achievements were considerable, and he is celebrated in history by being referred to as Theodoric the Great. Even though Theodoric the Great was gaining great esteem internationally as a legendary Germanic king creating an imperial reach in southern Europe, there was still an air of Romanitas or Romanness about the population. And Theodoric would also be concerned about what every great ruler would be concerned about, which was plots from within. Theodoric would be all too aware that there may be individuals living within his Ostrogothic kingdom that may have ambitions of taking his throne. This period in European history is the time of a man called Anicius Manlius Severinus Boetius, a Roman citizen born into the kingdom of Odoacha, which transitioned into the Ostrogothic kingdom. Boetius was a highly intelligent individual who was a nobleman and as such he served as a Roman consul, as his father did before him and his sons did after him. He set about translating many classical Greek academic works, such as those written by Aristotle into the Roman language of Latin. Boetius is also known to be a great orator and a philosopher and writer about theology and the nature of fortune. Such was Boetius's talent that Theodoric would entrust him to reform the coinage and distribute new scientific ideas throughout the kingdom. 
but Boetius was his own man and his choice of duties led to Theodoric believing that Boetius was involved in a plot to overthrow him. Boetius was imprisoned and he continued writing while in prison. When Theodoric had him executed, it is believed that the Latin world was denied more translated classical Greek literature as a consequence. The Gothic War Theodoric the Great reached his 70s before he passed away in the year 526. Theodoric had been married to a Frankish woman called Aldafleda, herself a daughter of the salient Frankish king Hilderic I, and so subsequently the sister of the first king of all the Franks, Clovis. This political marriage produced three children, but all of them were daughters. So Theodoric was succeeded by his grandson, Athalaric. Athalaric's mother was Amalaswinta, Theodoric's daughter, and due to Athalaric being just ten years old, Amalaswinta would become the regent of the Ostrogothic kingdom. Amalaswinta had very clear ideas about how she wanted Athalaric brought up, with an education in Roman tradition which was not a welcome idea with some of the Ostrogothic nobles fearing that Amalus Winter was steering the kingdom away from Ostrogothic independence and nearer to Byzantine culture. It may have been Amalus Winter's overbearing nature that took away any sense of responsibility that her son Athalaric may have had. He thought more of enjoying himself than ruling the kingdom and he was just 18 years old when he succumbed to the consequences of a heavy drinking session and died. Amalus Winter was aware of dissent among Ostrogothic nobles after she had openly negotiated with the Byzantine Emperor Justinian and executed three particular Ostrogothic nobles on suspicion of plotting to overthrow her. As such, she would name her cousin Theodahad as her new co-ruler in an attempt to repair diplomatic relations with the Ostrogoths. But it was too late. Theodahad encouraged the imprisonment of Amalaswinta, during which time she was murdered. This would grab the attentions of Justinian, who would see this as an illegal act. As Justinian had already taken back the lands in North Africa from the Vandals, he now had a good position from which to invade Italy. And events there had played out in such a way to give him a legitimate excuse to attempt to recapture the original homelands of Roman culture as part of his Renovatio Imperii Romanorum, which is the name of his conquest to reconquer lost Roman imperial lands, such as Italy, of course. This part of the story links us up to the Byzantine Empire story that we told earlier in the volume when Justinian sent his trusted military general Belisarius to do battle with the Ostrogoths in Italy.
a Byzantine army of around 7,000 landed on the island of Sicily in 535 and proceeded to take control of the entire island. From here, Belisarius would draw up plans to invade Italy the following year and so he crossed over onto the mainland and advanced northwards to the city of Neapolis, modern Naples. After a three-week siege, the city fell. The next target for Belisarius would be Rome, but the Ostrogoths didn't really care too much for Rome now that the capital city was at Ravenna. When Belisarius marched on Rome, there was no Ostrogothic resistance, so the Byzantines successfully regained Rome in a symbolic restoration of Rome to the Romans. The Ostrogoths did eventually get their act together and besieged the city of Rome, now containing a Byzantine garrison. And the Byzantine garrison by this time was low in number, so they could only defend themselves in the hope for some support arriving from Constantinople. This battle of wits was costing Rome and its citizen, bringing the desperate city to its knees. After the Byzantines had held out in Rome, hostilities moved further north to the city of Mediolanum, modern Milan. But an invasion from across the Alps by the Franks sent both the Ostrogoths and the Byzantines back down south until the decision was made by the Byzantines to attack the Ostrogothic capital itself at Ravenna. The city fell in 540 and the Byzantines had successfully taken back the Italian peninsula, with the Ostrogoths now hemmed into an area from Piedmont in the west through to Pannonia in the east. The Ostrogothic kingdom had been devastated, but in a stroke of good fortune, the great Byzantine military commander Belisarius was called away from Italy by his emperor, Justinian, who may have feared Belisarius's power and popularity being a direct threat to Justinian's own position as emperor. After the disappearance of Belisarius, a new Ostrogothic king would eventually take the throne and his name was Totila, and he had ambitions of winning back all the lost lands of the Italian peninsula. By this time, the Byzantine Empire was going through a degree of financial pressure, not least of all because of an outbreak of bubonic plague, and so Totila would take full advantage of this situation. Totila's military reputation is also supported by report of political competence when dealing with issues of land ownership, choosing to take care of the population and not just focusing on the aristocracy. His military campaigns against the depleted Byzantine presence in Italy were conducted by land and sea and were generally successful. The Roman Senate now subservient to the Byzantine Empire, would be appealed to by Totila, but the Senate chose to stick with Justinian. Even so, Totila's successes in reclaiming Italian lands were sufficient enough for Justinian to send Belisarius back to Italy after a period of campaigning against the Persians. Totila besieged Rome in 546. 
Belisarius was camped outside Rome, awaiting reinforcements from Constantinople. Any reinforcements were woefully inadequate, and Belisarius lacked the resource to be able to prevent its fall after a year of suffering. Rome was brought to its knees, and lacked its former value due to the depletion of its population. So when Totila moved his army south, Belisarius reoccupied the sorrowful city and refortified it. Belisarius left Italy once again in 549 and Totila took Rome once again. Justinian was tired of the situation in Italy and decided that he needed to deal a decisive blow to the Ostrogoths to deal with them once and for all. So he amassed an army that also comprised of Germanic mercenaries and totaled between twenty and 30,000 men. Justinian would appoint an alternative military general called Narsis, who was an Armenian who had served as a eunuch at the royal court of Justinian in Constantinople. Narsis led this force across the Adriatic Sea and landed on the eastern coast of the Italian peninsula. He met with the Ostrogothic forces of Totila in the summer of the year 552 at the Battle of Tagini. Initially, it was a battle of diplomatic wits between the two leaders before their armies finally engaged. Totila's forces were outnumbered and he tried to employ delaying tactics in order to buy time for reinforcements to arrive. The reinforcements did arrive, led by the Ostrogothic military commander, Tia. Despite the arrival of the reinforcements, Narsis was still equal to the challenge, and he was able to outwit the highly respected Ostrogothic king Totila and defeat him in this battle, killing Totila in the process. Tia would take the Ostrogothic crown, but Narsis would spend the following weeks capturing land including the city of Rome and pursuing Tia, who was desperately attempting to reorganise the Ostrogothic army. The decisive blow came at the Battle of Mons Lactarius when Narsis defeated Tia's forces and killed Thea in 552. This spelt the end of any kind of Ostrogothic rule in Italy, with Thea being the last known king. The Byzantines had taken control of all of the Ostrogothic territory, creating a Roman Empire resembling the size of glorious Roman empires of the past. The Lombards Mercenary Germanic armies that assisted the cause in Italy included the Gepids and the Heruli, but the biggest presence was made by the Lombards, who are estimated to have sent 5,000 individuals to help the Byzantines oppose the Ostrogoths. The Lombards had already benefited from the weakening of the Ostrogoths during the Gothic War by taking control of the Pannonian lands. Meanwhile in Italy, 
the Byzantine success there was hardly worth celebrating as the lands of Italy had been so torn apart by decades of warfare that they were barely worth the sacrifices made. The Byzantines lost their interest in Italy somewhat and left smaller forces there in order to govern and protect the lands. So, from being the wealthiest place in Europe, Italy was now quite undesirable. A new migration of nomadic steppeland peoples appeared from the east and into Europe during the 560s and they would approach the lands of the Pannonian Basin occupied by the Lombards and the Gepids. The king of the Lombards was a man called Alboin, and he negotiated a deal with these migrants to eliminate the Gepids, thus allowing them to occupy Gepid lands. So the Gepids were defeated, and the Gepid kingdom was wiped off the map of Europe to make way for the migrants known to history as the Pannonian Avars. Alboin decided that it may be wise to migrate westwards to avoid a conflict with the Avars and this would bring Alboin and his Lombards into the Byzantine lands of Italy. The Lombards took control of many northern cities of Italy, establishing duchies based at these cities. The Byzantines would attempt to resist in some places rather than others. Rome, Naples and Ravenna remained with the Byzantines, whereas the Lombards took control of patchy areas of the Italian peninsula. So Italian territories would go back to being under different political rulers, something not really seen for any established period of time since the days of the Roman Republic and the dawn of the Punic Wars. The Lombards weren't a particularly powerful entity, but the Byzantines were in no position of strength, especially in Italy. Alboin didn't really get to enjoy his new Italian home for very long as he was killed in a coup d'etat in 572. The biggest power in Europe going into the 7th century was the Franks, and the Lombards had to show due respect to the Franks in order to prevent invasion of their Italian lands from the north, even offering military support to appease them. Many Germanic peoples of the migration period that had converted to Christianity observed Aryan Christianity, which was viewed as a heretical type of Christian observance by the Byzantines and the papacy, who observed a Catholic style of Christianity. The Lombards also followed the Aryan tradition of Christian observance, but there were already a number of Catholics among their number. Theodelinda was the Frankish wife of the Lombard king, Achilluf, and as a Catholic woman, she persuaded her husband to convert to Catholicism, and his kingdom converted as a consequence. So, with much of Italy now destroyed, and peoples choosing to migrate away from the peninsula, the rich culture and wealth of Italy that had once existed under the Roman Empire was now a memory, and the politics of Europe was flourishing elsewhere now. As such, the Roman constitutions, such as senatorial politics and advanced academia, 
were no longer seen in contemporary literature. Constantinople was now the home of Roman culture and Rome was now just a highly respected bishopric of the Christian world. The Lombards, unlike the Ostrogoths and the realm of Odoacha before it, didn't resemble a continuation of the politics of the Roman Empire. As a consequence, we don't really have a lot of in-depth information about the politics of Lombard Italy in the early 7th century by comparison. We do recognise that the Byzantine Emperor Constans II showed a renewed interest in Italy, Despite the fact that the Byzantines held control of the major cities of Middle Italy anyway, he wanted to push the Lombards out and he would relocate his court in Rome in an attempt to exercise a plan to invade and conquer the Lombard Duchy of Benevento and link up Byzantine Middle Italy to the Byzantine territories in the far south of the peninsula. However, the Beneventani stood firm and resisted and Constans had too much in the way of internal opposition to his reign, not even to mention that the Muslim Arabs were now becoming a huge problem for the Byzantines in the east. Constans ended up being assassinated, and the status quo in Italy was maintained. We can see that cultural aspects seem to migrate between the two cultures of Italy, the Lombards and the Byzantines, and we can see Facial mutilation was taking place among important Lombard statespeople, which is something we described to be going on in the Byzantine court during a previous episode. Facial mutilation such as rhinotomy, the act of slicing the nose, would render the individual disqualified from being able to rule their kingdom or empire according to law, particularly in Constantinople. The Lombard king Liutprand, who ruled in the 8th century, escaped such treatment in his young life, but his older relatives certainly suffered from facial mutilation, such as rhinotomy and blinding, which we see a lot of cases of in Byzantine history. Liutprand would eventually come to rule over the Lombards at a key time in the history of Christianity, and this in itself would present opportunities to the Lombards. When the Isaurian dynasty took over the rule of the Byzantine Empire, their iconoclastic Christian attitudes alienated them from the papacy, which was the Christian bishopric of Rome. The papacy viewed itself as the correct Christian authority, with its home at St Peter's Basilica representing the authority of true Christian worship. The Byzantines opposed this attitude by suggesting that the home of Roman culture was now in the east and therefore the bishopric of Constantinople was the true authority of the Christian church. The Byzantine population of Italy would have to think about whether they agreed with Rome or Constantinople. Let's remind ourselves now of the politics of Italy. Fundamentally, Two powers existed in Italy during this period and they were the Lombards and the Byzantines. Lombard territories were separated due to the fact that the lands of Middle Italy including the cities of Rome, Naples and Ravenna 
which were Byzantine territories, formed a barrier between Lombard territory in the north and Lombard territory in the south. Likewise, the Lombard territory in the south, centred at the cities of Spoleto and Beneventum, modern Benevento, separated the Byzantine territories of Rome, Naples and Ravenna from the Byzantine possessions in the far south of the peninsula, which included the island of Sicily. The culture of the separated Byzantine territory was highly influenced by the Pope, and as such it would gradually distance itself from the Byzantines and eventually give birth to the medieval realm called the Papal States. Likewise, the separated Lombard territories of the Duchy of Spoleto and the Duchy of Benevento maintained a certain degree of autonomy in order to protect themselves. All of the Lombard territory was regarded as a kingdom with its overall rule being conducted from its capital city of Pavia in the far north of Italy. But Lombard, Spoleto and Benevento would not blindly follow the Lombard kingdom if circumstances did not suit them. With the tensions between the papacy of Rome and the Byzantines now escalating, each entity would welcome support from Lombard duchies. The Pope at the time was Gregory II, and he would seek the support of the Lombard duchies of Spoleto and Benevento, because the Byzantine Emperor Leo III had ordered the Byzantine Exarchate of Ravenna to march on Rome and capture Gregory, likely in order to install their own Byzantine-approved Bishop of Rome in his place. Ravenna would turn to the Lombard king Liutprand for support, and he would be quite obliging. This political situation would briefly put the Lombards against their own duchies in the south. Liutprand's motivations were his own political expansions, and despite the headline news being the iconoclastic controversy between the Pope and the Byzantines, the influence and attitudes of Liutprand and the Lombards was absolutely key to the outcome of this situation in Italy. Liutprand's stock was made all the more powerful by the fact that he had a strong relationship with the most influential man in the Frankish kingdom, Charles Martel. Before this period, there had been a great number of territorial conflicts between the Lombards and the Franks on their borderlands, so the removal of this pressure made Liutprand the most powerful Lombard king in their history. As such, Gregory II and his successors would try to appeal to Liutprand to stand with Rome rather than against it, trying to convince him that he would be honouring God correctly by standing alongside the papacy. Liutprand would show a degree of clemency towards Rome, but in his own mind his goal was to bring Rome and the Byzantine Exarchate of Ravenna under Lombard influence, and to remind Spoleto and Benevento that they were Lombard duchies and should show loyalty to the Lombard kingdom as a whole. Liutprand would govern his kingdom well by introducing such things as law codes to standardise what it was to be a member of the Lombard population. Liutprand died 
in 744, but such was the greatness of his reign that he had put the infrastructure in place for the Lombards to complete the job that he had started and he had successfully taken control of the Byzantine lands around the city of Rome, as his successors were able to finally take the city of Ravenna, effectively ending Byzantine influence over Middle Italy for good and uniting the Lombard duchies to form one continuous territory from northern Italy to the Duchy of Benevento in the south. The Duchy of Benevento and the Papal See still individually maintained a strong degree of autonomy and influence, however. The fact that the Papal See still maintained a strong influence over the Byzantine peoples, who still lived among the population, was a concern for the Lombards. So the Pope Stephen II felt threatened by this situation. The Frankish kingdom had moved on from the days of Charles Martel who served under Merovingian dynasty kings and was now ruled by Martel's son, a king called Pepin the Short, who was recognised as a member of the new Carolingian royal dynasty, the successors of the Merovingians. Pope Stephen would appeal for help from Pepin against the Lombards. Pepin would march into Italy and take Ravenna back from the Lombards, effectively taking control of the Exarchate of Ravenna. But he would gift these territories back to the Pope in an act which is called the Donation of Pepin. What was the Byzantine Exarchate of Ravenna was now the Papal States, and a strong relationship between the Papacy and the Frankish Kingdom had been established and this would have a strong bearing on the future of Europe. Pepin was anointed by Stephen, and the bond was secure. The Byzantines were actually hoping that the Exarchate would be returned to them as it was before, but it seems that the Byzantines felt betrayed by the Pope, and this would quite incredibly put them on the back foot as was also the current case with the Lombards, both of which were suffering at the hands of this alliance between the Pope and the Franks. So these traditional enemies were now together facing a common enemy in Italy. Both Lombard and Byzantine influence in Italy was severely weakened, and the Lombard king Desiderius acknowledged this and sought to strengthen ties with the Byzantine population in Italy. Desiderius considered how he could re-strengthen the Lombard realms in Italy again and he knew that he would have to create diplomatic relationships with both the Franks and the papacy. Desiderius was quite wily in his dealings. In 768 he attempted to install his own antipope as the new bishop of Rome, but this did not work out. This was also the same year that the Frankish king Pepin the Short died and his vast territories were inherited by his two sons, Carloman and Charlemagne. Desiderius would offer Charlemagne his daughter's hand in marriage in order to strengthen his position against the papacy. But the papacy was quick to remind Charlemagne that as Pepin's successor, it was his responsibility to protect the papacy. 
when Carloman died in 771, Charlemagne became the sole Frankish ruler and did no longer have any need for Lombard support. So the marriage alliance was annulled, much to the pleasure of the Pope, and Charlemagne prepared to invade Lombard territory. Desiderius really did not have the strength to resist the invasion of Charlemagne when it did finally come in 773. Charlemagne overran the Lombard kingdom and brought it into the Frankish realm, further extending the Frankish empire. The Papal States remained under the control of the Pope and the Duchy of Benevento remained somewhat independent, though very much wishing to distance itself from the rest of the Lombard kingdom and declaring its rulers as simply a prince, eventually having to concede to Frankish suzerainty. So this would signal the end of the Kingdom of the Lombards and the beginning of the road to the High Middle Ages where the Papal States were now an established territory, no longer anything to do with Byzantine politics. The papacy made it official that the Frankish King Charlemagne was the recognised protector of what the papacy perceived to be the true heartlands of Roman culture and the true authority over the Christian Church by granting him the title of Holy Roman Emperor, which was a title that had great political influence up until the beginning of the 19th century, centuries after the fall of the Byzantine Empire. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast and uh, sincere apologies for the background noise. We've got Storm Franklin currently um, hitting the UK and uh, certainly making its presence known in the background. There's not a great deal I can do about it, unfortunately, other than postpone the episode, which I, I didn't think was a good idea. I thought it'd be best to just soldier on. I don't think the the storm should be uh, causing too much disruption, but um, I just wanted to point out that I'm aware that you can hear it in the background, and, and I apologise for that. So, um, hopefully, one day I'll uh, maybe you know I'll have my own studio that I can shut myself into, and we don't have to listen to these gusts of wind hitting my front room windows while I'm recording. So, anyway, um, nonetheless, uh, I would like to thank you for listening to this week's uh, fascinating episode about the uh, the history of Italy after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And like we, we can tend to shut our eyes to what was going on after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, but in a lot of respects, what happened in the wake of that is much more interesting than what was going on beforehand. And um, we can see that there were many different influences um, vying for um, control of the Italian peninsula and ultimately it really was the, the Italian peninsula itself and the population of Italy who suffered as a consequence of these many different entities, the Ostrogoths and the Lombards and the Franks um, battling away over uh, these territories uh, with, uh, with the likes of the Byzantines and, uh, and eventually the papal uh, states. So really uh, intense politics leading to a lot of misery and suffering for the people. Uh, but nonetheless, a very interesting part of Italy's history 
and uh, it was great to be able to tell the story of it today. The Ancient World Cup. Okay, let's have a look at this week's um, World Cup. Um, we are running a World Cup competition um, that uh, features 64 Ancient World Cup teams. Um, the, the, uh, the point of the competition is to find out who your favourite ancient group of people are and so ultimately we're going to knock everyone out until we're, we're left with just one team standing tall at the end. And the way that we do this is via a voting system which takes place on our social media pages, Facebook, Twitter and the Tapper Talk discussion forum. Now uh, each week we have a group of four teams and uh, the idea being that we put it to the vote and whoever the top two are will advance to the next round and the bottom two will be knocked out. This week... Uh, was Group M, and uh, it featured the the Medes, the Anglo-Saxons, the Mauryans, and the Olmecs. So we've got quite uh, quite a good array of of teams there. We've got uh, someone from the Middle East, uh, someone from the British Isles, someone from India, and someone from uh, Central America. There, let's find out how you voted. So the winners of the group. Uh, with 47% of the votes were the Olmecs, those uh, large head-producing Mesoamericans from over um, 3,000 years ago. Second place in the group, with 35% of the vote, were the Anglo-Saxons. Um, very much a, a fascinating, especially for me being an Englishman, very fascinating race of people there who, uh, who sort of established uh, the, uh, eventually they established the, the nation of England um, and they're through to the next round. That unfortunately means that we lose the, the, the first significant empire of, of India with 12% of the vote, the Mauryans, and uh, coming rock bottom of the group, unfortunately, with 6% of the vote were the Medians. Um, who were an integral part of the the final defeat of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Um, so there we go. That's the end of Group M. Next week, uh, we're going to be looking at Group N. So um, let's see uh, which teams are in it. Now, I think, if, uh, if I'm being honest, uh, probably Group N will likely be the most highly anticipated group of this round um, because it, it's just a, a group of powerhouses. And um, it's just the way that they it's come out of the hat. There's been no sort of setup for this. It, it just really was 64 teams randomly drawn out of a hat. And uh, this is who we've got in Group N. Um, possibly one of the favourites for the entire competition, um, the Romans. Um, are in there, probably one of the, the greatest um, empires that the world has ever seen. Uh, we've also got in there the Spartans, who um, whose legacy is, is probably greater than, and, than their actual existence. Uh, the Spartans have really be, been quite romanticised as this great uh, archetypal warrior race of people. Uh, from ancient Greece 
Um, in uh, Group N, also in Group N, we've got the Nazca, who are this very, very mysterious um, South American group of people who were able to create these huge geoglyphs that we were just not able to even we were just not able to even recognize these uh, incredible um creations until we were able to fly we were able to sort of see them from the air um so really what one of the great wonders of of the ancient world the nazca and um then the finally we've got probably the greatest rival of the Spartans drawn out in the same group the Athenians who um you know you could you could argue were really um quite a lot of the basis of the success of the city of Rome uh before it became uh, the Roman Republic that we knew it would become it, it, it probably learned a lot from the embassies that travelled to Athens and met with the Athenians and their great uh, democracy, uh, or what we call a democracy, this ancient democracy style of rule that existed there. So what a group that is. I'm really, really interested to see how you guys vote. Um, we've got to lose two of them. Um, it almost just seems ridiculous that we have to lose two of them but uh, that's the that's the game that we're playing so um, so we must proceed so look out for that um starting from uh, sort of monday um or sort of tuesday if you're if you're over in in the uh, the sort of the eastern hemisphere of the world um you'll be able to start voting and uh, we'll see uh, the outcome next week Illuminati question time. I just had to stop there and put some uh, WD-40 on my chair to stop it from uh, squeaking. I have to do that every so often. Um, I never imagined when I went to the store and bought this chair that it would uh, it would be so problematic in terms of uh, a broadcasting uh, position. Like it just certainly wasn't. Uh, wasn't designed for broadcasting or podcasting this chair so um, every now and then I have to put some WD-40 on so that you don't hear me uh, fidgeting about for the whole uh, for the whole episode but nonetheless I've done it now um, Illuminati question time it's not a feature that we have every week this one is it it's um, basically I'll explain what it is the Illuminati is an exclusive club with the, for all of those financial benefactors of the podcast people who donate through patreon and through buy me a book and um and help me to keep the podcast going we we invite them to be a member of the history of the world podcast illuminati and uh, as such if you are a member of the history of the world podcast illuminati uh, over time you will accrue the right to claim some of the rewards that we have on offer and one of those rewards is the ability to ask a question of the podcast now in terms of uh, new members of the history of the world podcast illuminati i think now's the right time to uh welcome in uh eric p who joins this great long list of history of the world podcast illuminati members 
thank you for your kind pledge and welcome, Eric. Uh, but uh, this week, um, we're going to be um, acknowledging uh, one of our one of our patrons who has uh, asked uh, for a question to be answered, and and I'm about to uh, I'm about to read out that question now. It has been sent in to me by a gentleman called um, Andres Altazar. And uh, he, he has put, both of my parents were born in Estonia and immigrated to Canada at fairly young ages where I was eventually born. I've always been immersed in the Estonian heritage and culture and have been lucky enough to visit once before they joined the European Union. My question is quite simple. Were there Estonian Vikings? One constantly hears and reads of the Norse, the Swedes and the Danes, but what about the people of the eastern shores of the Baltic Sea? Thank you kindly and take care, Andres. Well, I almost feel, Andres, that you might be in a better a better position to answer this question than me um what a great question initially incredible question well done uh estonia what a great part of the world i, I think anywhere um anywhere anyone that would have asked me uh, about estonian history um before reading before i read that question i would my first thoughts would be about the Northern Crusades and the settlement of the Teutonic Knights um, because I don't really know a great deal about Estonia before that period, before the Northern Crusades, which were, you know, almost, uh, oh, I don't know, off the top of the head, maybe around um, 700 years ago, perhaps. Um, now, um, I have got a few... Uh, resources that I I sort of I I took a look at. Um, my understanding of the Vikings really is that they were quite centred around Scandinavia and and uh, Jutland. You know that that was really the the heartlands of Viking culture and 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 wherever we found Vikings going forward and that that if we if we look west we can look to the Faroe Islands we can look at Scotland we can look at Ireland. We can look at Iceland, um, Greenland. All of those places were settled by Vikings who were travelling from Scandinavia. That was the, really the heartland of, of Viking culture. And Viking culture really came about um, because of the geographical uh, nature of the of the of the uh, of the territory that they inhabited there really just wasn't a great deal of fertile land to be cultivated so when the populations grew the only thing that someone could do was go viking and what i mean by that is that you you get in your boat you go somewhere and you go and steal someone else's stuff and and that what it, that is what it was uh, was uh, to go viking uh, so Viking, like as an original term, as I understand it, was was more of a verb than a, than a noun. Um, however, they've come down to us in the modern age as as these Vikings, these great, um, incredible, unique, brave warriors. These these ruthless and brave warriors that uh, that that went in went across the sea and started uh, raiding these uh, territories, but also. 
uh, we don't really think about what the Vikings done to their east, the, the, to the east of Scandinavia, those territories such as Finland and Estonia and um, the places along the Baltic Sea. Um, and I suppose, um, you know, what we do know is there is definite evidence of travel in that direction. And uh, we, we can look as far um, as far east as uh, Starea Ladoga on the Lake Ladoga um, in the modern country of Russia uh, to see that the, the Vikings certainly travelled all the way along the Baltic Sea and then traversed uh, the river, the river whose name escapes me, that joins sort of St. Petersburg to Lake Ladoga. So I'm sure someone will correct me there. Um, and then and then entered Lake Ladoga and, and conducted their raids or, or their or their trades, let's say. Not not just their raids, but also their trades. So so it does seem like it was more of a trade uh, culture going eastwards. Um as a consequence, um, there is no doubt that Vikings actually, um, at, at the very least, visited uh, sites in Estonia. And I suppose it will only be um, archaeological uh, discoveries in Estonia that will ultimately tell us more about the Viking uh, population of Estonia. Certainly when we track Estonian history... Um, they refer to the pe that period of time as the Viking Age of Estonia. Um, so there's certainly an acknowledgement that Vikings would have uh, been in or, s or maybe even settled in Estonia, but there's just very, very scant evidence at this point. And so like, and, and maybe, you know, maybe one or two of your listeners will know more than I do about this subject and it'll be great to hear from you and I'm sure... Um, I'm sure Andres would be would be thrilled to hear from you as well if you do have any further inf information about it. But certainly um, not a lot to um, to sort of say that there's evidence of any Viking culture that um, that emerged in the lands of Estonia. But if if there were Vikings in Estonia, then certainly they would have been visitors, I would imagine, and um, and it's highly likely that they were definitely there because. We know that there were Baltic trade links, and uh, and they would have inevitably have had to have uh, travelled past and no doubt landed in the lands of Estonia. So um, that's about it, really. I hope you're not too disappointed with that, but it's definitely worth discussing. And uh, you know, you've certainly earned the right to be able to ask that question as well. I offer the offer you that right. Don't always I can't always promise that I would know the answer. We're, we're just based on. The, the science that we do have to hand. So uh, hopefully we will find out more. It's a great question and I really thank you for asking it, Andres. And that hopefully we'll have more questions from Illuminati members um, in the future. Listener messages and reviews. So as usual, we wrap up by uh, reading out your emails and uh, also acknowledging the, the great reviews that are normally posted for us online. So um, we'll read them out now. The first one I'm going to read out is uh, actually from somebody who's written into the show before, um, Brittany Baker. And Brittany has uh, reminded me to uh, wish 
her partner, Sam Jones, a happy 30th birthday for this coming Friday. Um, Sam is a big fan of the show and, um, and, and I'm assured that he will be thrilled uh, that he's getting a mention on the podcast. So, Sam, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, congratulations on your 30th birthday. And, um, you know, your, uh, your, your partner, Brittany, is uh, obviously a treasure to be beholded. So uh, look after her um, because she obviously cares a lot about you um, to uh, go to the trouble of making sure and reminding me to wish you a happy birthday. So uh, thank you very much to you both and, uh, you know, best wishes to you both as well. Thank you. Um, going forward, uh, Jakob Danke has put, uh, hi Chris, uh, hey Chris, Jake here. So it's so maybe Jacob Danke, sorry. Um, absolutely love your podcast. I blasted through the first volume in about one week and now I'm working on the second volume. I just finished the King Tut episode and stumbled across this interesting article about his Iron Dagger. I thought you might find it interesting as well. Anyway, uh, love the podcast. Listening from Detroit, Michigan, and can't wait to catch up and annoy my friends with more random ancient history facts. LOL. Um, Jacob, uh, Jake, um, I would strongly encourage you. I think anyone that does send me links to stories and all like that, I would really um, strongly encourage you to share it with the community rather than just me. Um, obviously we're all history lovers listening to this podcast um, and um, you know I've, it's it's not just me that will be interested in it and we've got like and you know we went through we've now got over a thousand Twitter followers we've got over 1500 Facebook followers and they I'm sure they would all uh, be very grateful to you Jake for sharing that uh, sharing that with with all of them so uh, looking forward hopefully to seeing that in the near future um, Ed has written in, and that's a, that's all I've got. You got the shortest name of anyone that's ever emailed me, Ed. Um, hi, I wanted to tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. Extremely informative. I like the way you present information without supposing to know all the answers. Great pace and use of humour makes it relaxing and easy to listen to. Thanks for adding joy to my walks, housework, etc. Seattle, USA. Well, thank you, Ed. Um, for that kind message. Um, Geordie Camps has written in saying, uh, Hi Chris, I wanted to thank you so much for making this podcast. I'm a designer, I've been listening to the podcast as I work and it's very interesting and inspiring. I am always looking for interesting things to listen to while I work and I found your podcast randomly on Spotify and I love it. I'm on Unscripted 1 after episode 17 listening to it now. I just felt like I had to tell you how thankful I am uh, to you for doing this. Thank you, Geordie Camps. Oh, cool. Unscripted episode 1. I can't believe. That was a long time ago, Unscripted episode 1. Um, I believe that I, I, I went... I had to go to Kenya, I think, I believe, back way back then, uh, which is why I did a couple of unscripted episodes because I wasn't at home to broadcast. But that was, that was, uh, that was four years ago now. That was such a long time ago. I can't believe how how far down the road we've come. Um, now let's uh, let's go and uh, find out if we've got any 
any more reviews. As usual, I'm I'm never prepared for this part of the show. I just uh, and and then I have to ramble on about uh, rubbish just to sort of avoid any awkward silences. Um, here we go. Dave S from New Zealand um, has put great podcast. Love this podcast. Just what I had been looking for. Covers an amazing amount of material at a great pace. It's easy to keep up with. Really like it when the places are referenced back to the modern day names areas so that I can visualise where they are. Just up to volume two, episode 16 and answering the call for a review from New Zealand. Love your work, Chris. Thank you. Always great to to get reviews from uh, less obvious places in the world. So like the podcast tends to be listened to by you know well over I think 50% of our listeners are from the USA and then a vast portion of the remainder is made up from UK, Canada and Australia so it's, it's great to receive a review from New Zealand. Um, Milky Pirate 99999 from the United States of America has put be good. This podcast is simply amazing. I discovered it during Christmas week when a lot of other podcasts were on a break and I needed something else to listen to. I immediately became addicted and have spent the months of January and February binging all 200 episodes. Um, I am now sad to be caught up and can't wait to spend the next five or ten years listening week by week until we reach the modern day. I, like many listeners, am ashamed to admit how little history I knew and how little I thought history interested me until I discovered this podcast. Chris makes learning history fun. Why couldn't history be taught this way in school? I would have paid much more attention. Before I found this podcast, I knew that Aristotle, Caesar, Napoleon and Picasso were important historical figures. If you had told me they had all lived in 500 BCE, I would have believed you. If you had told me they all lived in the 1800s, I would have believed you. Chris's podcast has allowed me to place historical figures into their proper historical context and to truly fine, finally understand history step by step from the beginning. Thank you, Chris, for taking us on this amazing journey. I've become a Patreon member as well, and I'm honoured honored to support you and your cause. Well, th- thank you very much. I can't wait to keep listening. The only question, the only outstanding question is, will we reach C- Christopher Columbus by the end of of the year 2023. Uh, can't wait to listen and find out. Well, let, let me... I think, yes, we'll, we'll certainly uh, finish Volume 4 uh, by the end of 2023, I would hope. So that that's somewhat the plan. Um, <clears throat> however... Um, the journeys of Christopher Columbus um, in detail will probably more likely be covered in uh, Volume 5, to be fair. So that, that represents the next sort of stage. So the, the, the story of the Americas will really uh, cover the period up to the, the time when Columbus lands in the Americas. So... Um, so yes, we'll we'll certainly be uh, be, be taking the story up to uh, Christopher Columbus's uh, explorations by the end of the year twenty twenty three. But the detail of such will be in the next volume, I should imagine. EJ Aruba from the USA has put can't get enough amazing podcast that is presented in a way 
where you only want to know what happens next. Started in January this year, binging on my commute to work, now finishing volume two. Appreciate all the work uh, you do. Greetings from Aruba. Uh, brilliant. Greetings from Aruba. It says, it says uh, United States of America here, so... Um, unless there's a town in Aruba, uh, or a town in America called Aruba, which that I don't know about, but um, if you are in actually in Aruba, that's wonderful. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The old uh, the throat's run a bit dry there. I think it's uh, trying to cram too much in. I think. Um, anyway, I I think that's the lot. I think that's it for this week. Next week is a is going to be a, a fun week. We're going to be starting the story of the Franks, um, which are a, a major part of European history, as as were the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. To be fair to them, but um, certainly uh, the Frankish story is uh, probably the most significant Western European story um, when we look ahead to the uh, to the emergence of the modern. Um, the modern European uh, stage. Um, certainly the Franks were were really uh, an incredibly huge part of that and from humble beginnings so we're going to be um, we're going to be looking at that initially next week. Um, we're going to be um, exploring uh, the such characters that we've already mentioned uh, in podcast episodes such as Clovis, Charles Martel, and uh, Charlemagne and find out exactly who they were and how they fit into the Frankish story. Um, Merovingians, Carolingians, we're going to be finding about that. We're also going to be finding out why King Clovis uh, shares his name with uh, an ancient American prehistoric culture. Uh, have you ever thought about that? There, There is a link and we'll uncover that link next week. So, um, we look forward to that. Until then, have a great week, everyone, and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.